0: This Dharma talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org.
1: So I think people are starting to return. I just wanted to take a moment and warmly welcome Dojin Sarah Emerson to the Austin Zen Center Zoom Zendo and, uh, Sarah is currently serving as a co-head priest of the Stone Creek Zendo in Sonoma, California, with her husband, Charlie, who we, uh, we met here a few, like a month ago, about. And so Sarah has been practicing at the San Francisco Zen Center from, when did you start, Sarah? Like 90s, mid 90s? Something like that? And um, practiced with, uh, when I first met Sarah, she was studying with Paul Haller, who is my teacher. And then uh, a few years later, after living at, I think, all three centers, um, Sarah uh, uh, ordained with Galen Godwin Roshi from Houston Zen Center and uh, subsequently received Dharma transmission from her maybe five, five or so years ago, I believe. Mm-hmm. So Sarah, it's really wonderful to see you. And I wish you could be here with us in person. I wish we could all be in person. Um, but it's really lovely to see your your smiling face. And um thank you very much for for coming and sharing the dharma with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Mako and, and Choro and Austin
0: Zen Center for the invitation to be here with you. And thank you for that introduction. Yeah, so mako and i lived at Tassahara for a number of years together um think like around the beginning when i was pregnant with kaya does that sound right <laughs> but we knew each other before that for sure our oldest daughter who just went to college by the way it's crazy um let's see i'll give you maybe a couple um more bits of information about me um, just because i was thinking today about you know it's, it's nice to offer some like, what are what are some of the conditions, you know, you could probably make some assumptions about me, but um, I can tell you some of them. And it's so evident to me lately that the conditions that shape me are, are so vast, you know, and, and for all of us are vast beyond our knowing, I can just name like the tip of the iceberg that I can see some of them, not even all of them. Um, so my name is Sarah, my Dharma name is Dojin, and I use the pronouns she and her. And my teacher is, is Abbott Galen Godwin. So I'm connected um, to the Houston Zen Center and have been to Austin a few times, but it's been, it's been many years. Um, but I can picture the building <laughs> and stuff. And um, my partner is Charlie, who I think spoke in, in July. And I'm also a parent of, of three children that range in age from 18 to almost 10. And um, yeah, that's a big one in terms of what shapes me. I think my being, each of my children is, um, they, they are each awesome in the true sense of the word and th- their impact on me being their parent is, is uh, profoundly impactful and uh, teaches me deeply. And, and, you know, it's a privilege actually to be their parent as I was thinking about it today. And then I'm I'm white. I identify as white or you know European descended American. I was raised in the Northeast. Spent a lot of my adult life in Northern California. I spent a lot of my adult life in um, in convert Buddhist sanghas that are predominantly but never exclusively white, as, as <laughs> Mako can testify. <laughs> uh, and all of these things really shape me. And I think in, and I've also studied psychology and I think in psychological terms, probably from my parents, but also from my education. And all those things, you know, create a bunch of uh, biases in me. And I name that because, um, you know, there's the biases I have obscure my vision and um, I welcome your feedback and your input if I say anything that is um, alienating or doesn't resonate or causes harm, in particular. I know that's hard to offer that feedback, but I do welcome it. And what I really feel like I want to talk about today in its essence is refuge in Sangha, what that means. I've been, at our Sangha at Stone Creek, we do, people do the lay ordination or receive the precepts and so rakasu um every two years which is really neat we have this two-year cycle and we just started that again so I've been thinking about the precepts and I've been realizing that refuge in Sangha is one of the precepts you know we receive it when we receive our Rakusu as a lay person we receive it as a precept when we ordain as a priest we receive it as a precept again when we receive transmission in our in in this tradition the Soto Zen tradition so it's a to take refuge in Sangha as a precept And when I think of the word refuge, actually, I I think of um, safety and, you know, or there's something bigger in refuge, though, you know, like ease and protection and belonging and maybe a a place that is uh, away from harshness, you know. And. Um, All human, all places where humans collide, you know, whether it's an intimate sexual relationship out to, you know, at the grocery store and including sanghas are places where um, all of our conditioning and all of our experiences and all the stuff that's great and all the stuff that's unprocessed and all of our injuries are, which are vast for each of us, you know, are colliding. So of course, these any place of human intersection is a place of uh, where there will be harm, you know. And I was thinking this morning about this, and I was remembering um, when Charlie and I were coming together. We were living at Tassahara, um, one of one of my beloved teachers and elders there, Leslie James. For those who have been to Tassahara, we were talking and. It doesn't always happen, but when you get into a relationship and you're living in that kind of community, you have to do a lot of talking about you know, what you're doing getting into the relationship because it does impact the community. And I, uh, we were in the early stages, you know, so that's, I love how, like in, like in psychology, actually, they have done studies, when you're falling in love, you're actually kind of going, you're kind of crazy. <laughs> There's like a kind of insanity. Um, and we were, we had a long arc, it wasn't like a slabam. Um, But still, we were in early stages of relationship and, um, and Leslie said to me, you know, you will hurt each other. And I was like, no. (laughs) I remember thinking like, I would never, I would never, we were still being very careful with each other. Um, But I knew she was right, sort of irritating. Because I was like, no, oh, she's right. Um, And I was thinking about how that that applies in sangha as well you know we we're, we're together long enough there will we will cause each other pain there will be harm and actually in in i don't know what you call it now like relational theories and stuff in, in the world of psychology when they look at relationships um healthy a quote you know i don't know healthy or resilient relationships are one ones not where there's no conflict or there's no pain but the determining factor of of the resilience of a relationship is what are the machinations of repair? How do we fix it when we harm each other? And that that actually is is determinant of, uh, yeah, health. And that's totally applicable to Sanghas, I think. In Zen, there's a concept, people heard this concept of one continuous mistake. It's a description, actually, some people, (laughs) I was also thinking, how. Sometimes there's this thing like Zen is, you know, fill in the blank. Zen is, Everything changes. It's one of those. Zen is one continuous mistake. So, um, it's a, and when I was looking it up, there, the characters actually, when it's written um, with Chinese characters, it's actually like uh, a file filing a file. or you could even use the idea of like um, meeting a mistake with a mistake. And when suzuki roshi talks about it i'll talk about it maybe a little bit more later he talks about like you know the like it's the idea of um showing up for the truth of our life over and over again there is no or the feeling i get from the description is like there is no end point we don't get to be done and now we're like good and we're not making any more mistakes and nobody can ever shame us again <laughs> much as we may long for that you know as human beings but that it's actually one continuous mistake and that practice supports us to be willing to show up over and over again um, and make our best effort. And uh, yeah, so I was thinking in Sangha, refuge in Sangha, there's the the relative safety of Sangha, which is, you know, safety is a loaded and maybe not such a helpful word. But I realized like, but in my heart, what I aspire to in Sangha is that that we create environments as Dharma practitioners. So we here, I mean, as Dharma practitioners, we create environments where um, it's not that we assume we won't harm each other, but that we assume there's a way forward when we do. And, and we all are up for that. That makes sense. That the, the safety or refuge actually depends on how we meet the pain that arises. You know, among other things. Um, I, as I mentioned, I. I was raised in the United States, and I identify, or I, you know, in in the racialized system of the United States, I am labeled white, and I am like all my, all my, ancestors are from far, north east western Europe. So like the islands, you know, not even, well, not even the land. Um. And, you know, and, and then the way that that plays out in this system. And so I can name for myself and I and I know I've met many other people that share this, with, I, I was highly impacted by white dominant cultural norms. And in, in my experience, many of the Dharma environments I'm in, uh, utilize white dominant cultural norms of engagement. Wonder how that is for you at Austin's Zen Center. Would you say that, does that make, does that characterize some of what happens there or, yeah, (laughs) I can see a small nod. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, not that white culture is a monolith, but there are these characteristics, you know, that seem to be, there are some generalizations one could make, you know, like conflict avoidance, it's biggie that I've seen, um, perfectionism, And, and truthfully, like a kind of duality around good and bad and right and wrong. I feel like Zen practice supports us to not be in duality. Right? I think actually Suzuki Risho is just like the most important thing for a Zen student is to not be dualistic. <laughs> so Zen encourages us to live in, the, in some grayness, you know, and understand like there is no such thing as goodness devoid of badness. You know? um, but I was thinking about perfectionism and the way I was just being curious about it recently, like, thinking like my parents weren't particularly hard on me. I think some people get uh, that can can inherit a momentum of perfectionism from their immediate family. I didn't really get that there, but I certainly got it from the environment around me and it worked for me, I think, or I don't know. Um, but I was feeling into my heart the way that perfectionism lives. and um, And I could feel like perfectionism is an attempt to get to get the get to put ourselves in the category of goodness, I think, as human beings, and then that, and then if I really feel into that, I really recommend doing this. Actually, like getting quiet one day, and bringing to mind like good, like the word good. Like, what does it mean to us? You know, when when did we learn that? For most, I would say, in my experience, and for most people I talk to about this ideas of good and bad come from really really little like we were really young and and we when we're really young we are naturally dualistic thinkers you know we're not nuanced (laughs) although i don't know actually little kids have more nuance than we give them credit for maybe or we project on them um but but some of these ideas of what it means to be good you know are taprooted into early early life and some of them we haven't really revisited do you know what i mean so it's like they're there and they're functioning. And in my world, being good was totally tied to belonging and being right was tied to belonging. And, and, and it's important, I realize like it's good for me to know that because um, I really wanna receive feedback, for example, or I've found that to be super helpful in developing as a human being. But if, but if someone coming up to me and saying like, you know, that thing you said hurt me, um, meets with the three-year-olds whose belonging is threatened, I'm not going to get very, or nobody's going to get very far, <laughs> you know, and that's, and truthfully, in my experience, that's often what's happening both in myself and in when I'm talking to other people. Um, I I don't, uh, yeah, I, I feel like I live in cultures where there's a a desire to develop systems of feedback that are flowing and can tolerate, you know, genuine communication um, but for the most part the cultures i live in are still operating with the like conflict avoidance <laughs> perfectionism um, and and also in the in the dharma spaces i've been in that again have are, are never exclusively but are often predominantly white i i over and over again and i hear this in the sangha where i live and teach now um, there's a I often hear expressed a longing for the um, environment to be more inclusive. And certainly, you know, I think it's really important to understand that inclusivity has so many dimensions, you know? I mean, truthfully, it's like, actually, like, inclusivity, I think, is is a fine word and describes something about being open, but it's really like, can we just humanize everybody, everybody? Can we humanize ourselves and one another i was talking uh, with a group about this this week actually and one of the things that we came up together was realizing that um the like systems of oppression and and uh, exclusion certainly we can see them externally in in the community around us you know but also taking note of how they happen internally the, there's like parts of myself that I have learned to silo off and hide and shame away and, and so that if we really want to create inclusive communities, we have to do this reflection internally and externally, you know, like, can I be inclusive of all that all the beings that I am, all the different aspects that I carry, including the ones that I were told were unacceptable, You know. And uh, and in so in these different environments that I've been in, uh, when there's this request about you know can the can the environment how do we make this environment more inclusive how do we bring in more folks and particularly when it's around race and racial diversity, um, in lots of different settings I've heard from Dharma siblings of of color that um, one of the things that would be really helpful is if there were fee, if if it could be both normalized and developed that there were feedback mechanisms that, that worked. And not like, so that not only was feedback, you know, not only could you be, well, first of all, could, can, can it even be heard? You know? Recently, something was happening, and I realized like this training that I have around being polite totally superseded my intention to protect a person of color who was being harmed in the conversation. And I was just like, damn. You know, like, if you ask me if I value politeness over protecting beings, I would say, no way, you know, but but there it was, like, really, I could see it. And so, yeah, like, and, and like, can, right, is, could we, like, I think there are people that feel like feedback is rude, <laughs> opposite of polite, probably in the bad category, in the not belonging category, you know. Um, But feedback is totally essential, because um, first of all, there's all that conditioning that that we all carry, right? There's, and there's, you know, again, like maybe, maybe 2% of it seen and like 98% of it unseen and still impacting us. And then there's this other piece that I think is so critical to get really neutral around, which is that um, because of that, it's often the case that our intention in saying something or offering something like into a Sangha environment uh, may be heading in one direction, but our impact can be heading in another. And I don't know if this, do you all talk about that, the distinction between intention and impact at Austin? Yeah. It's, it's to me, it's like, like it's a nice idea, but to really work with it, like a con, like it is off, not, on, not only possible, but often the case that our intention, you know, is not, does not line up with the impact on people. And again, I can see that in harm that I've caused, because my intention is is, um, you know, shaped by the conditioning I have. And so I can't. I'm not totally aware of how this would sound to somebody who has different experiences, identities, and conditioning. And again, and then what I mean by getting neutral about it is to just be like, you know, can can we just rest in that? And and if our intention doesn't meet up with our impact, like we said something trying to be helpful, but instead we were harmful, is that a terrifying juncture for us? You know, does does it? If someone brings that to our attention, are we like? I can't hear this because my my feel like my being is being threatened or my sense of myself is being threatened or my sense of belonging is being threatened or can we be can we support one another to be receptive. You know? and, I, and I feel like practice in, in Zen really offers a lot to support us to be receptive to be curious to be open. I can also see like in my um, cultural conditioning. I was actually taught like intentions, everything. If you have good intentions, no, no one can touch you. <laughs> and then also there's that wonderful thing, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So some somewhere along the way, we, at least, in, <laughs> I've heard that many times, right? So somebody noticed, uh, nope, those don't always line up. Yeah, and and so and one of the uh, uh, interesting example in our sangha recently was a person who was who was white identified talking about how much they would like the sangha to be more racially inclusive, and in the midst of that, saying something that um, uh, added to the erasure that some of the few people of color in our sangha feel over and over again, and then give but but giving that person that feedback was really painful um and really threatening and it and and in the midst of that conversation i could just feel like oh i could just feel the pain uh, even of my own conditioning You know, like oh it's so powerful and especially if we're white identified it is really my experience is most people are terrified of being called racist most liberal white people anyway are, are really afraid of that so it's like a like a monster of badness, you know? And there's another piece that I wonder in community, if we can get a little bit more comfortable with and a little bit more neutral about is like, I received racist conditioning as a white person in America. I definitely receive that Um, and it comes out of me. I am a parent of a child of color when my son is not white. Um, I work super hard to keep a really close eye on my conditioning. And it's, you know, it's deep conditioning it comes out. And you know, and, and, and maybe maybe because I'm a parent, like, I don't have the luxury to like crumble to the floor and be like, no, no, I should never be racist. It's, I, I, it's, it's uh, more resilient for me to be like, okay, yeah, that happened. It's really painful. And um, I see it, I'm keeping it out in front of me, I'm learning something. Um, yeah, so, so systems of feedback, and, and you know, it's not just about race, you know, it's about all of our myriad experiences. For example, like when people talk about a family, and they talk about it in a way that assumes that it's a biological blood connection. I hear it all the time now, right, as an adopted my son's adopted, as an adoptive parent. That's an that's a awareness I have oh, family doesn't necessarily mean genetic um, ties, you know? Um, and so we all have those things, we all have these lived experiences, these,
2: the,
0: the ways in which we deviate from white dominant cultural norms, or patriarchal norms or, I don't know, television norms, <laughs> you know, sitcom norms, all the things, you know? I don't know, I was, I'm 50, so I was raised in the 70s which I do idealize a little bit and um, but there was a lot of tv shaping me you know and sometimes I look back at that and I'm like oh my god the lens the lens I have now to look back or even to look at movies from the 80s that I thought were great and now I watch them I'm like,
2: <laughs> I'm
0: like wow there's a lot of cultural conditioning you know beyond just our family beyond just our beyond our immediate communities but but in media that really shapes us and so and so in sangha can we create refuge by creating genuine belonging that means like everyone and all aspects of us are actually are welcome and have a place there Um, there's this place at berkeley i think it's i think it came out of berkeley law school i'm not totally sure it's called the the um, othering and belonging institute have people heard of this place it's re- i really recommend checking out actually let's see i think i have it here i can i'll put this in here and i'll put the quote i'm going to give one of the at least one of the founders if not the founder is a uh, an extraordinary person uh john a powell and he talks about and it, so this is a um my understanding is it's a reframing you know sort of it's an evolution there was like when Mako and I lived at, at San Francisco Zen center, there was like multiculturalism and then it, and then it evolved into diversity <laughs> and now into inclusivity. And, and I think othering and belonging is uh, a new, kind of a new frontier of looking at these issues. That like really what we're talking about when we're trying to make environments where people are genuinely accepted and feel a sense of belonging is belonging. And I think it's a really neat frame. And he says, of belonging, Uh, belonging means more than just being seen. Belonging entails having a meaningful voice and the opportunity to participate in the design of social and cultural structures. Belonging means having the right to contribute to and make demands on, I think that's so important, society and political institutions. And I would add to that religious institutions to make demands on, I think it's really important. Another uh, aspect of belonging we can look at is um, accessibility issues, you know, like, you know, um, the, the sangha I teach in is um, predominantly, it, it's again, like it's predominantly what identify people but not exclusively, and predominantly but not exclusively folks who are in their um, 60s, 70s, and 80s. One of the things our sangha does really well is physical accessibility. Like over fifty percent of our sangha, uh, of our zendo, when we were in it, um, is chairs. So if you and and we mostly are a shoes off place, but some people needed to wear shoes because of their uh, what their body bodily need was, um, and we totally welcome that. And you know, so I just feel like oh, there's a place, you know, in that realm of inclusivity, Stone Creek does really well, and we can build from that. And and like, could people not only voice like, oh, actually, I need to wear my shoes because of the way that my body works, but you know, maybe demand is a word that I I, I can feel it actually. Like, I'll say for my own acculturation, it's like, oh, don't make demands. <laughs> but I would say it's a good word, make that or or you know, maybe I, I honestly a part of me is like, I want to turn it into request. May i make a request, <laughs> but a request means like it might not be granted you know, but a demand is like, I want to be here. And I need to wear my shoes in the Zendo, or I want to be here and I need to lie down to do zazen. I want to be here. And I'm a person of color. And I need you to start paying attention to how you speak about the Sangha. Because every time you say that we're an all white Sangha, for example, that sometimes gets said, I feel unseen. And I want to leave. But I don't all want to leave i kind of want to stay here but i'd like you to change (laughs) while you're saying that you know can we make demands on this yeah i'm gonna spend some time i feel like that word demand could be a koan for me to work with anyway could could i get neutral about demands (laughs) especially about the dharma you know because belonging a sense of belonging in a place like a sangha I mean, I would, as a human being, I would love it if we could have a sense of belonging everywhere, you know, like schools would be places of belonging and soccer teams, (laughs) just thinking of my son a little bit, and, you know, your neighborhood and the grocery store and your workplace. Um, But I do feel like Sangha's, it's okay in Sangha that we as practitioners hold ourselves deeply and spiritually accountable. So, you know, one of the, um, sometimes I get to um, engage with and teach at this place called the East Bay Meditation Center, also another amazing place, which was founded um, by and for people who were traditionally marginalized by converts and uh, by convert Buddhist song, it's not a Zen place, it's a Buddhist place. Um, So so um, elevating and making primary the needs of people of color, people with uh, different physical abilities, the LGBTQI, they say the alphabet community (laughs) because it's gotten really long. Um, uh, One of the questions that I've heard raised there a number of times is the one of who isn't here? Like in all of our environments, we ask the question, who isn't here? And in Sangha, I feel like this is such a Again, it's not like a question to ask and then get the answer and then fix the thing it's a it's a con it's a practice we're always asking who isn't here. And we could even again do that like externally and internally, you know what pieces of myself are not here do I feel like I can't bring here and and in Community who is not here who doesn't feel like they could show up and noticing or who shows up and doesn't stay
2: you know who's not here.
0: And that this is a way to, yeah, keep a close eye on um, creating feeling a, a, a refuge in sangha. Because in you know in and its base the dharma belongs to everybody, and we all belong to it. You know, I don't. I somebody recently was asking me, like the idea of like proselytizing as a Buddhist came up. you know like do i are my kids Buddhist and i was like i don't know (laughs) like i I think as buddhists generally speaking although there is in the united states there's the soto zen buddhist mission (laughs) like they use that word mission but um you know it's not about like making people buddhists so when i say the dharma belongs to everyone like i don't care if people are buddhists but but wisdom belongs to all of us you know Mm -hmm. understanding that all things are connected belongs to all of us and we and if we are lucky enough in this lifetime to encounter these teachings and, and help take care of them, um, we have to take it super seriously that that is available to as everybody, you know. And of course, it never will be right. Like even just by the reality of physical location, you can't get everyone in your sangha. Um, but could it be held with? Can we hold it with that aspiration that anyone would always feel? At ease there. I want to leave some time to um, to talk with one another and hear hear your thoughts about all of this. I'm just looking to see if there, there's I know there's one more thing I want to share. I think uh, actually there's a couple. Um, I think it's really important to look at the obstacles and be honest about the obstacles that exist to like genuine feedback and communication in sanghas one of one being like how we're conditioned not that that's uniform for all of us but for each of us you know look inquire into our conditioning were we were we raised with models of people um, offering frank and and upright feedback like I was thinking about when I was a kid what the adults around me did when they had problems with other ad- adults and I can't really think of an exception to watching the adults like, you know, person A had a problem with person B, person A would go to person C. (laughs) They would not go to person B and say, hey, there's this thing that's bugging me. I, I did not see that modeled. I don't know. I hope some of you did. I know that there are people who are, you know, acculturated to be more direct. Somebody recently was saying that, like, I think they were they were stereotyping somebody who was European. Maybe they were Dutch. They're like, "You know, they're Dutch, so they're direct." And I was like, "Oh, is that a thing?" Or maybe they're German, I can't remember. Um, but I I saw a lot of indirect and and scooting around and creating alliances, you know, that that um so just noticing, "Oh, how I was trained to communicate as a human being uh didn't have a lot of skillfulness in it actually." how do I work with that? Um, another piece to think about is that especially if, if we are wanting to have conversations about race and racialization, is that being racialized the way that that works in the United States anyway, is, is traumatizing for everybody. It's differently traumatizing for people of color than it is traumatizing for white people. But really, I, I think it's fair to say everyone is injured by systems of racialization and racial hierarchy Um, it harms everybody even the people who are apparently on the top of the hierarchy meaning white people and so if we're going to have conversations about that we just call to mind like oh this is a field of trauma and so what do we know you know like there's a lot of i feel like collectively in the united states that there's still a lot of learning about what trauma is but there's some knowing go slow go with care. Another thing I think is super helpful is stay grounded in the body. Take some deep breaths, feel into your own somatic lived experience. And then meet the situation. Uh, because that that the more we can ground in the body less we're going to go into a reactive fighter or, or There's a I've heard recently like fight flight, flee or fawning. And I was like, ooh, that describes Something <laughs> that I recognize, like if it's a terrifying situation, fawn, like be like, nicey, 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 apologetic. and and know that that's a trauma response. Like I was like, oh, super interesting and helpful. And and um, and can we and can we be open to um, our mistakes not being terrifying or, um, you know making us into bad people who don't belong and should be ejected from a sense of connection can we even get to a place or can we support one another in sangha as practitioners that um, when someone's bringing difficult feedback to us that we actually can even see like well that's actually an offering there's a fair amount of investment in relationship if someone's being bold enough to do that you know Uh, yeah and can and can we even maybe be enthusiastic? <laughs> I I when someone brings some really difficult feedback to me, I notice like I'm not exactly enthusiastic, but I I built a, a greater capacity for willingness, and then depending on what it is or how disjunct it is from my perception and my understanding of myself, I sometimes in order to receive it, I sometimes need to ask for some time. Like I'll be like, oh okay like because i'm just kind of contracting into the pain in my stomach or whatever's happening and i'll be like can you get you know i really want to hear what you have to say i need a little bit of time and then i go away and i spend some time with my conditioning because usually if i'm contracting i'm like okay you know there's something there and then come back um so the last thing i just wanted to offer and i'll put this in the chat too is a a concept that um of, of that I read about, and actually, it's by um, the son of a colleague of mine who also trained and lived at Zen Center, Chris Fortin, who's also a Zen priest, and her husband, the Zen priest Bruce Fortin, and their son Evan uh, wrote this article. He's I think he's working on a book, but he wrote this article about resilient accountability. And Evan mostly um, he's he's writing and working with and uh, working with kids around gender, and so he was. Writing from the perspective of how they work with young men or young male-identified people, and their con- their social conditioning, and he was noting that one of the things he's noticed is um, that there's a lot of obstacles for young men to like meet mistakes with openness. They just meet it with a lot of defendedness. And he was saying, as a youth mentor, I encourage teens and boys to celebrate their mistakes. But when he sees defensiveness and reactivity, he said, I understand that they were never given the skill set to be comfortable with uncertainty. And that just made me think about Zen. It's like "Oh, Zen practice is a skill set to allow us to be comfortable with uncertainty. And so that then there's a capacity there
2: um,
0: to be in discomfort of uncertainty. Like I said this thing and I thought it was nice, but you're telling me it was harmful. Now I'm in uncertainty, (laughs) you know? And I'll just read uh, for you what he says. I, I changed the words he was writing. He was writing it directly speaking about young male identified people, but I changed it to us, meaning us as Sangha practitioners. And we, if we grow in the capacity to learn from mistakes, we can better hear and empathize with those around us without growing defensive. This is resilient accountability. It's a different form of strength and resilience than is usually expected of us. Instead of suppressing difficult and complex feelings, we can have the integrity and fortitude to look at them head on and be willing to look at the responsibility we can take in a situation." And I just felt like, oh yeah, that's my wish for Sangha you know, for my sangha and and all sanghas. Thank you very much for your presence and attention, and I look forward to hearing your reflections on this.
1: Thank you so much, Sarah. I have a I have a question, and this is about sangha sangha relationships. And um, I don't know if you remember uh, a certain practice period at Tassahara where. During the practice period, a number of different groups formed. I think it started with a people of color group. And then there was a women's group. And then the men's group started. And then there was the recovery group. And soon, work circle announcements were kind of like the different groups were kind of announcing when and where they would be meeting. It's like, oh, we'll be in the retreats uh, in the in the yurt or in the back of the dining room or however, uh, wherever those groups were forming. And there was a little bit of, um, If I recall, a a friend of mine, uh, Aaron Merck, really um, agitated. There are a couple of people who are agitated at all these groups forming because of the feeling of, you know, what are we here for? Are we here to identify in this specific place? You know, so you know what I mean? There is this feeling of uh, pushback against people identifying and then separating themselves from Sangha to go off into their groups. And so she, in her playful way, she had decided she was going to start a group for people who slept with hot water bottles. Because <laughs> <laughs> there were the people who had heat and the people who did not have heat. <laughs> and, you know, it was a playful way, but, but it really, uh, I remember feeling because I was, you know, I was part of some of these different groups <laughs> and, um, and really feeling like, oh, there's some, there's some pain here as well and you know some poking at what we're doing and and to be self-reflective amidst the (laughs) self-reflection so i wondered if you could say something about about how to hold the, the actually the diversity right of uh feelings and um conditioning and reactivity and and so forth within sangha um, I notice it because, you know, we have a, as Bruce mentioned, there's a women's circle that will be starting next, not this Monday, but the following Monday, and it'll run for five weeks. And um, this question of having a women's group at Austin's Center has come in, in past years. I don't think there was one since I've been there. And I've been hesitant about starting a, a women's group um, myself, um, in part because I don't identify as... Uh, female in particular, even though it sometimes is like, oh yeah, I guess I am. You know (laughs) know what I mean? So so there's a, you know, it's again, there's this in me I'm noticing this this not wanting to like land in a in a group, right? And maybe that's, you know, understandable from conditioning of being half Japanese and half white, right? Or being half this and half that and, you know, not being gay but not being heterosexual like there's all these kind of like i'm not this and i'm not that and that in itself itself has become can become an identity right or a fixed view of oneself. So just noticing noticing all this I wonder what uh, in in your experience with uh, working um, in particular with deia groups and with your training, and uh, what you're leading with spirit rock now the, the uh, um, I think Rich is in in that as well, right? But um, I wonder what you have, uh, what comes to mind. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really touched
0: by that, Mako. And at some point I was like, well, of course you came to Zen and got non-dual. Hi, Peter. you know, I and I remember that practice period too. Actually, Erin and I talked about that not so long ago. And, and when, I, when she was, I think it's okay to share that, that she was, um, I mean, I think Erin does identify as queer, but she got pissed that she was invited to the queer tea. She was like, well, you're making assumptions, <laughs> even though she is queer. <laughs> and I just feel the first thing I feel like thinking about that also is like, any identity is too small. Any identity is is dehumanizing to us because we're so complicated, you know. Um, and just and just like, for me, like just allowing giving that some room, like, yeah. And anytime someone is is assuming stuff about us, it pisses us off because we're because we know we're so much more complicated than that, you know. And anytime we're doing that to other people, we're being reductive, you know. And and we're doing it to ourselves, we're being reductive. Um, Yeah. And then, and also, and so that's like the beautiful, I don't know the beautiful, that's the truth, right? Like that's, that's the, that's actually the the whole truth that even that truth even exists in the, I was going to say, that's more of like the um, ultimate truth, but it's not like that truth exists in the conventional realm. We are way more complicated than any identity we could name for ourselves. And then, but then there's also the truth of how things work in society and, and, and I would say, you know, the United States does this to the nth degree, I feel like, or dominant culture in the United States, which again, like the United States is itself, right? Super complicated culturally, you know? but there's a, there's a momentum of dominant culture that really wants to label everybody and and that has caused harm, you know? And not only does it wanna label people, it wants to, and then put some people up and some people down, and that's why we label, boom, you know, like this this violence over and over again, you know? Um and because of that, we need to heal together in sometimes, I think, in in segregated spaces, <laughs> where people share the identities, you know, and especially when the identities are marginalized, you know. And then I can also say like you're naming this the it's actually over now, this course at Spirit Rock but, um, there's a couple cycles of it that um, was it the the kind of brainchild of our Dharma sibling, Lian Shutt, who's a Vietnamese American, mm-hmm. uh, to bring people, both people of color and white people together to look at race and racial um, identity. And um, and then we, in our small groups, we we um, divide. And actually this go around, it, it was a really big group. Spirit Rock has a really large reach, so it wasn't even all the people in the United States. That was interesting, you know. Um, and, a number of people who identify as people of color were like, we're not a monolith, <laughs> rightfully so. And interestingly, this time around, one of the options, so you could, if you were a person of color, you could choose to be just in a general person of color group or within with certain identities, African-American, Latinx. And there was a um, m- or mixed race or multiracial group. And one of the things we heard from the folks in that group from several people in that group was like, this was the first time in their life they could pick that identity, which I was so moved by. Because my son is he's he's multiracial, he's half Samoan and half white. In Samoa, like in, in Hawaii, there's the idea of Hapa. In Samoan culture, there, it, the same word is or not, it's a little bit of a different connotation, but Afakasi, like there's an idea of people who are mixed anyway, I think it's super complicated. <laughs> and I'm curious, you know, and I feel like you shared a little of your experience, I'm curious about your experience. And and in my experience, there's certain kinds of healing that can happen when we are in uh, segregated groups. And even and even so in talking about race for white people to come together, there's certain stuff that can happen there. That truthfully, like just protects people of color from the harm of white people figuring stuff out that feels pretty upright to me. Like Let's just go over here and not burden everybody with our like,
2: oh, I don't even know what it means to be white, you know?
0: or I'm, but I'm a good person. Like, yeah, 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 we're all good people. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, so I think it's super complicated. I I think we will evolve beyond the need, you know, as human beings for segregated spaces of healing. And, and I don't, and I think we're certainly in the, th- we're right in the middle of, needing segregated spaces of healing around gender and sexuality around race around physical ability you know around all of it yeah but please you know share your experiences about that if you have them definitely backfires a lot <laughs> too
1: thank you sarah
2: yeah.
3: Hello, Sarah. Thank you for coming again. It was great uh, being in that um, Dharma of being anti-racist class at uh, Spirit Rock this past summer. It was wonderful. And I remember going into that, being kind of skeptical of the idea that um, being racialized was some sort of traumatic experience for me. And then by the end, I was like, okay, yeah, no, I get it now. I get it now. And it was like, I didn't, at first I was like, no, now I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Because it's the, like you were saying, the conditioning that I received um, that I didn't even know about, I wasn't even aware of, that was like sort of creating my perception of the world. And um, that that was a traumatic experience for me and that it was causing harm for others was something I hadn't been aware of. So in particular, I was thinking about, um, I've been rereading that article by Tema Okun, the white supremacy culture article that I think you might've mentioned, the perfectionist element is one of the, the, the elements of white supremacy culture, which I've like, wow, that's been a huge struggle for me all my life. And it's been very painful. Um, another one that I've recently been thinking about is this idea of objectivism or objective perspective, like that white people tend to think that their view is objective and that could you speak about that a little bit because why that's traumatic and why for people of color and others. I can't I can't
0: speak. I can't speak from experience about why that's traumatic. but I have heard from people of color, you know. Um, It actually makes me think of this is kind of a funny little story, but it it really shows something there. um, Prince Charles and his partner were visiting um, the East Bay in California, they were visiting Berkeley and a program there called the Edible Schoolyard, which is a really neat program. And um, where they, this, at this public middle school, they have this amazing garden that, that our Dharma sibling, um, Wendy Johnson was foundational in creating. He was visiting them and talking to the kids there because I think he's into like organic farming. And the kids said to him, I really like your accent. And he's like, well, thank you. I like your accent. And the child was like, I don't have an accent. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, it's just a good description of, you know, when you're in the dominant category, your conditioning obscures you from understanding how your being impacts other people, right? Like there is such a thing as an American accent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In other countries, people will peg you as American if you have one. You know. Um, yeah, and that and that I I really love that. Actually, I was thinking about that today and seeing if I'll see if I can share it before we go, or I could maybe just um, I could email it to Mako if you don't have that already or people. Are. I shared it in the chat actually. Yeah, I could try if I can find it on my computer. But the, what what Rich is referring to is this um, a really neat document called White Supremacy Culture and its characteristics. I hesitated because you know I realized, I do. Do you all use the term white supremacy culture to mean like white dominant culture? Because I've been in some settings where people are like, "Do you mean neo Nazis?" And I'm like, "No, I don't mean neo Nazis. I mean, you know, just like the dominant culture in the United States that that privileges whiteness. That's what it is meaning here. And the characteristics. So what's cool about this document? Is not only the illumination uh, um, of, of characteristics that seem like, you know, if you're white like me, you're like, well, that's just the way we're supposed to be. <laughs> we're supposed to be, like, we're supposed to be on time all the time, and that's just being an adult or whatever. And then, but what's really neat about it is it offers antidotes. So, how we can work with our conditioning, you know, what's an antidote to perfectionism? I actually can't remember right now what she offers, but it's really, um, it's very engaging. Um, and, and for me, again, as a practitioner, it's very engaging because it's like, well, how, okay, so I've got this, now I understand I've got this conditioning. How do I work with it? How do I remedy the harmful impacts of it? So yeah, let me see if I can, I think it's somewhere here on my computer.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful article. It's, it took me a while to sort of get my head around it because it was like, I didn't want to believe it at first. And then now I'm like, <laughs> well, that makes so much sense, you know? And, um, you know, in terms of object, the objectivity piece, the antidote is to see that, you know, there's no such thing as a neutral perspective, that everybody's conditioned perspective has a conditioned perspective. And that to think that yours is somehow neutral is to ignore your own conditioning and to not appreciate that other people are speaking from their own conditioned place as well, you know, is the antidote to that you know, everybody's speaking from a conditioned perspective in which their their racial location is part of it.
0: Yeah, and, and so in Zen, we call this study the self. Right, right. right. Like, look at your conditioning, study the self. Right. Dogen, this isn't like some newfangled thing coming out of Northern California. Oh, no.
2: It's not Dogen
0: Zenji like said, study the Buddha way is to study the self.
3: Right, yeah, tribalism is not like a new phenomenon in the world history, so yeah, no, I knew what you mean. Um,
1: so here, let me see if I can. Uh, Sarah, you're muted, but also uh, Rich did post the article in the chat. It's uh, it's available if people want to download it. You can click on it and it'll download to your... Oh, you notebook. already did it. It's in the chat. I uh, agreed. And it's, that, it's the
0: updated one, it's still here. Yeah. It's
3: the new one, yeah. Thank
0: you.
3: But I wanted to also say that, you know, we we in Zen, we talk about non-dualism a lot. But I feel like one of the things that I've been studying non-dualism with Kokyo Henkel and others that the idea that studying or trying to attain a non dual awareness doesn't preclude the possibility of having understanding dualistic thinking. So it doesn't mean that I never stop thinking about my conditioned self and my conditioned thinking and the way I tend to view things as right or wrong, and you know, this is the right way and that's the wrong way. You know, I I still can look at even if i'm practicing non-dual awareness you know it's like i can wake up to my own conditioning right
0: yeah yeah so right And, and we talk about the two truths right we don't awakening does not mean we mush out into everything being the same you know that's not that's not liberation actually it's it's actually a kind of delusion you know it's balanced with the conventional reality and in the conventional reality we judge things yes we do (laughs) we will you know the buddha probably judged things (laughs) i think think probably you know he didn't want he didn't want mahabhajapati to get ordained at first he was like oh he was judging (laughs) (laughs) so yeah so we were awake to our humanness and then and then it gives us a chance to be be deliberate with it to be to let our values inform what we're gonna do, right? If we're not awake to our humanness, we're just human, we're just karmicking, negative karmicking all you know cycles. But if we get it out in front of us, you know, and, and again, so that's where I mean that, that place of feedback, sometimes we can only get stuff out in front of us because somebody who cares about us and is in relationship to us is like, hey, you didn't notice this thing. You know? Instead of being like, go away, we can say, thank you. I do want to notice that thing. It's super painful to me that I didn't, but I I do want to notice you. Know? Yeah, thank you, Rich. I, I was like I, I knew I knew your face from somewhere. <laughs> no, I know.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, thank you. Do we How how long do you do Q&A usually? Walker? <laughs> um,
1: it really does. it really depends sometimes. It takes forever. <laughs> <laughs> we go for quite some time, but but um, I, I will leave it to you, but what we do, Sarah, here, we, after the Q&A, when it seems like there's a natural ending point, which could be, you know, not that long or could be quite long, um, <laughs> then we break into small groups um, for those who want to stay. We just kind of break into the, these small groups to kind of mimic a, our sort of normal <laughs> pre-pandemic tea and cookies. Like right? the milling around after, I know, we do yeah, that too. Go to a, you know, randomly into a small group and you know, you can stay in it for a little bit and excuse yourself or, or end up sometimes people end up chatting for some time. So, um, okay.
0: Yeah, I feel like just because um strangely, like both Char- Charlie had a meeting at seven this morning. <laughs> I probably will uh, go relatively soon, but I'm happy to hear maybe there's one more and if there's one more, maybe there isn't, maybe we're maybe
1: we feel I actually have something I wanted to say just from your, or the last comment that you made, uh, Sarah, and that is around, you know, how to encourage, I, I mean, I hear your strong encouragement to give and accept feedback within community as, as a major part of practice, and this is such a dear topic to my heart, <laughs> is is the topic of feedback, and in particular, just how recognizing how deluded we are and self-deceived really all of us are self-deceived and um and to see that feedback of oh wait a minute you might be a little bit you know off here or you might not recognize something that i see because i'm not you <laughs> right and maybe i'm wrong too but you know to how do we cultivate seeing the giving actually the giving of feedback even if it's not necessary, if, it, if it's bumbling, like how to see that as a gift, and and how to see it specifically, not when somebody's giving it to it, but when we're giving it, to think of it as a gift that, you know, maybe it, it makes, you know, you have to think of the timeliness of it. When does it make sense? Because so often we're like, you know, it's not worth it. I don't want to, you know, and that's, that's um, you know, such a challenge because, you know, maybe sometimes it's not worth it, but it's an opportunity and to step into it builds relationship and it builds that resilience, right? So I wonder if you can say something about, you know, how, how do you, um, how, what what do you find most encouraging um, to jump in and um, take the risk of offering feedback? Well, I think one of the, like
0: you just, I think you were pointing to it, Marco, are we coming in when when we're offering feedback first of all can we see it as an offering i love that actually we might instead of it being a drain on us we might have more energy for it if we're like okay well this might be a gift but we have to have a lived experience of it being a gift (laughs) yeah so that and and it's like well how do we get there in our awkwardness but i think uh one of the things i've seen that's been really helpful probably i don't know this probably comes from like nonviolent communication or something like Staying in inquiry, so not like this thing was bad, but like this thing felt weird to me and I wonder if you're willing to talk about it, you know, and and also staying in our own experience seems to be. uh, Create uh, more receptivity on the part of the other person, and also it's just literally more skillful right like. yeah so those two things I think are there are a bunch of skills, we can work on in sangha you know. Um, first of all, like, or like name, it, like talking about feedback, and why it matters, um, acknowledging that it takes energy, you know, like I often ask for feedback at the beginning of talks and I also know, particularly um, for people of color, like it, it's just tiring to offer feedback, like, you know, I, I understand that, you know, um, and I'm not entitled to that energy being given to me, you know. There's another reason for white folks to really engage with this, like so we can help each other without, again, like drawing more energy from people of color. Yeah, but I think those things of like just staying in inquiry and staying in our experience. Yeah, Karen, do you wanna add to that?
2: Um, Yeah, thank you. Oh, I'm so deeply appreciative of of this um, talk, and um, I'm actually looking forward to listening to it again. and what the marcos last question i think it, i i've been sort of wondering some maybe some th- sort of things like you know well yeah how do we do this because i and what it brought up for me was how um i mean perfectionism all that stuff is very real and that trauma feeling of oh my god somebody's going to tell me i'm not good um and so the you know, difficulty, it, how to, how to make it feel like a safe space to, you know, do that. And one of the things I'm thinking about is, um, we've been doing some, uh, discussion groups on whiteness and racism. Rich has been in those, um, this last year and a half, starting with workshop we did with, um, Angel Kyoto Williams at, at Tassahara a couple years ago. Um, and we're kind of in the middle right now of um, my grandmother's hands, which has a lot of chapters. <laughs> I love it. Um, and I'm just thinking, well, you know, these are exercises in working with trauma. Maybe I could direct like this idea of the difficulty of getting feedback, the, this perfectionism thing and the sort of challenge of doing that. Um, To some of those exercises, just on a personal level. I mean, I don't know if there may be some more group ways we can, you know, make this happen and make it safe. But what are your thoughts about that
0: in general? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think to understand this effort as part of practice will help. You know, helps in the sangha yeah and Rezma, I don't know how he say Resma mennekin or i've heard I've heard his last name said menekin or Menakin. um that book my grandmother's hands is is it's like a workbook almost and um and then he has a lot of online training material there's a lot that he offers and he's coming more from i think he's a social worker by training yeah so that more from the psychological world but where you know investigation of trauma is really um probably the most advanced you know um I think doing. I, I think as you're pointing to, like doing doing some of that internally, so that when we engage with others, you know, um, and and just valuing it actually, and so that you know, and, and I think, yeah, another another piece. I can't remember if I think it is mentioned in that um, characteristics of white supremacy culture. Like comfort is very. I can see this just in my own family of origin. Comfort is really elevated as a value, and it's like challenging that in yeah. in relationship with one another. I mean, like, it's okay. I've had really wickedly uncomfortable conversations. At, like I am somatically like squirming and and I am still here, <laughs> you know? And, and like, so the, again, like having those experiences, like we have to accumulate those experiences, like, oh, this will not kill me. In fact, actually this discomfort's probably gonna last about 72 hours, I now know this. <laughs> My queasiness, my nausea will last about probably about seventy two hours and then it will start to be. Um yeah, and then also just there's so many offerings right now, almost like too many, right? It's there's so much that's being offered now that we're all online and we can get everything. And sorry, I'll just enter one more thing into the chat, which is um I just saw this and wondered about its efficacy and songs was so there's an article by a professor named Loretta Ross. She's a um African American teacher, I think at Smith College. About, call, about the concept of calling in versus calling out, this idea, like we're calling and actually in, in, our, in terms of Zen practice, we could understand it as like, you know, can we engage in these conversations as forms of relationship and connection versus efforts of division and separation? Mm-hmm. And again, even that, that thing that Mako was pointing to before, every time someone labels us, it's a it's a violence of separation from our wholeness, you know, and then I just saw that she, and it was from Reverend Angel's Lister actually, that there's this uh, lecture series about that she's co hosting with another person. Okay. The how to of calling in. And I thought, like, oh, I hear so many people are like, well, how do we do this? So I'm like, oh, here's an expert. So maybe check that out.
2: <laughs> Great. I will right, we'll do that. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much, Sarah. I think we, we can let you go now. <laughs> It's been really nice to be with you. Yeah, uh, I hope, um, hope to see you sometime soon, face to face. We really love yeah. it. has yeah. been a long time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, thank you very much, Austin Zen Center. If something comes up for you later, uh, please, Mako has my email. I, I really do, I genuinely welcome your feedback <laughs> and your input. Thanks. Thank you, Sarah. Take care.